great to see all of you again. Hey, if this is your first time with us this morning, we are so thrilled that you've chosen to worship here with us today. I hope you'll come back. I hope that there's something here today that really registers with you, and, and this feels like home, and this feels like family already. And so I just want you to come back and be a part of what God is doing here, but we welcome you. Hey, we are continuing today our series called God of the Underdogs, and if you were here last week, then you kind of know what this series is about. We're talking about the underdogs of the Bible, and the Bible is literally chocked full of these kind of underdogs stories. And what I mean by that is there are people who, when you look at their life and you look at where they came from and everything else, you're like, that's like the least likely person to do what God had them to do. This is somebody that maybe started at the back of the pack, but, but with God's help, they finished at the front. Um, these are people who their friends at the time would never have said, they're going to be talking about you thousands of years from now. They're, they're not those kind of people. But yet God used them in significant ways. Some of the underdogs that we are going to study about and have, they had to overcome their own obstacles. Some of those obstacles were their own excuses. And then there are other underdogs who were simply the recipient of an incredible blessing that nobody saw coming. That is certainly the story of the underdog that we're going to learn about today. It's not so much a story about what this person did as much as it is a tremendous blessing that was received that was definitely not deserved. It was unexpected. Nobody saw it coming, and it catapulted that person to a new level. Now, the underdog that we're going to learn about today has a very unusual name. His name was Mephibosheth. Now, be honest. How many of you have never heard that name before? Mephibosheth. All right, just like the other services, how many of you have heard that name before? I've heard about Mephibosheth. It's a hard name to say, and so I'm going to give you a moment to just learn it. So I'm going to put the word and how it sounds on the screen behind me, and I want you to say it with me. One, two, three, Mephibosheth. You know what? Every service gets better and better. Saturday night, I said, Mephibosheth, and they went, hmm. <laughs> Didn't come out. First service, you guys did good. Now I want you to turn to the closest person to your right and say, Mephibosheth. I'm going to give you a second to do that. All right, now turn to the closest person to your left, and I want you to say, Mephibosheth. Now, you agree with me, right? There's a reason why we don't give our children today these kinds of names, because we love our children. And, and can you imagine going, like if your child was named Mephibosheth, and you wanted to give them a biblical name, and for some reason that's the one you chose, and you went, say so they signed up for soccer, and they said, first name, Mephibosheth. How do you spell that? Anybody got a name in here that you got to constantly spell for people? All right. I guarantee it's not as bad as Mephibosheth. All right. So we don't call our kids that anymore. Now, before I can tell you Mephibosheth's story, I have to give you the backstory because if we go right to his story this morning, it's not going to be very impactful. It's not going to mean a whole lot to any of us. Where the real strength of his story comes in is when you understand everything that led up to his story. And so take the word Mephibosheth, and I want you to mentally set it over here on the shelf for just a minute. We're going to come back to him by the end of this sermon. I want to give you, and probably spend the bulk of our time together today, telling you about his backstory. Because in his backstory are some names that if I had to guess 
are more familiar to you than his name. And one of those names that's in his backstory was our underdog last week. David, 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 our underdog last week, the one who came out of nowhere, the youngest of all the brothers who nobody thought was going to amount to anything, would become the next king of Israel. David plays a major role in Mephibosheth's backstory. And so what I want to do is I just want to review for you real quickly a little bit about David. He was, he was going to be become, he was going to come the king. Samuel anointed him with oil and declared that he was the next king of Israel, but it did not mean that he became the king right away. In fact, it would take a whole lot of years Years filled with struggle and testing and danger before he would ever assume the reins of leadership of, the, of God's people. As we track with David's story, we learn that after he was anointed with oil, the very next thing that happens to him is he fights Goliath. You remember that story in the Bible? Like the very next thing, he was still just a kid, a young guy, and he was out taking lunch to his brothers who were fighting in the army, and nobody would go against this Philistine, this giant of a man, this warrior named Goliath. They trembled in fear, and David's like, I will go and fight him. And you can go read the story on your own if you want to familiarize yourself with it, but David walks out there with nothing more than a slingshot. That's really all he had. And he faces off with this giant. And they have this brief conversation as they're walking out to each other for this one-on-one duel. Now, I've got the conversation on the screen behind me. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 17. Goliath shouts out to, to David. He mocks him, and he's like, come here. Now, I don't, I don't know what Goliath actually sounded like. That's my Goliath voice. I think it sounded something like that. If you're that tall, your voice is that deep. It says, come here. And then he says, I will give your flesh to the birds and to the wild animals. Now, please don't ever tell me that the Bible's boring. If anybody ever says, ah, the Bible's just boring, they haven't read this story. Because where else can you go where some giant says, I'm going to feed your parts to the birds? This is not boring. And then David says back to him, I love what David says. He says, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty. And he takes down that giant. And his life, David's life, would never be the same after that. Now, do you recall last week who is actually the king of Israel right now during this story of David and Goliath? It is King Saul. But what's the problem? He's a bad king. And so God has removed his blessing, and that's why Samuel went behind Saul's back and anointed David. That's what God told him to do. So he anointed David. And so this King Saul, who's still very much the king of Israel, he watches David take down this giant. And it's in that moment that we see Saul, the first signs of jealousy and fear and envy, they start to take root. And so Saul begins asking questions that very day. Who did you guys say that kid was again? What was his name? Who's his dad? Where's he from? It's almost like from that moment, Saul had his eye on David. Now, 
David's life would never be the same after he killed Goliath. You would think that being anointed the next king of Israel would bring the spotlight, but it didn't. What brought the spotlight of the nation's eyes on David was the fact that he took down Goliath. That's when people started to notice who he was, and Saul was never going to take his eye off of him either. Now, there's two really important details that are in the backstory of Mephibosheth. And the first one is that Saul is very jealous of David. Now, we read that as the story progresses. Saul is super jealous of David, and that is a huge piece of Mephibosheth's story. The other huge piece in the backstory of Mephibosheth is that David becomes best friends with King Saul's oldest son, Jonathan. So Saul's jealousy and David's friendship with Saul's son that is the backdrop. That is the backstory leading up to Mephibosheth. That really is the only reason we have ever heard of his name. So here's what leads up to our underdog today. If you got your Bibles, please turn to 1 Samuel chapter 18. That's where we're going to be today, and I'll give you a moment to find that in the Bible. And if you kind of want to see the scope of where we're going, we're going to start in 1 Samuel 18. We are going to end in 2 Samuel chapter 9. So that is the distance we're going to cover. Now, rest assured, we're not going to read it all together, but, uh, but that's where we're going to be. So 1 Samuel 18, all the way to 2 Samuel chapter 9. 1 Samuel 18, verse 1, it starts like this. After David had finished talking with Saul, now this is right after he killed Goliath. You might remember, this is one of those awesome details of the Bible. David comes back to Saul, his tent, and he's carrying Goliath's head, and they have a conversation. Can you imagine? Can you imagine this young guy, David, holding Saul's head by the hair, says, yes, Saul, did you want to see me? And so after they finish that conversation, Jonathan becomes one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. Did you know that little detail of the story? After he kills Goliath, Saul's like, you're not going home. You're coming with me. So he never goes home. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic, even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Jonathan and David have a very special bond. Can you remember that? They have this incredible bond, unlike any kind of bond that we see anywhere else in Scripture. They're not just best friends. They're like not just brothers. They're like blood brothers through thick and thin. Nothing's going to separate us or ever come between us. And the Bible says that Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. This is just descriptive language about how close they were and how tight their friendship was and why they would enter not only into this covenant but into another covenant later in their friendship. Now, sadly, there are some who try to take um, David's deep friendship with Jonathan and make it appear like it's something that it most certainly was not. A romantic kind of relationship that not only would have been detestable in God's eyes in that day, but would still be detestable in God's eyes to this day. And some people who I would say are absolutely grasping at straws to try to draw a conclusion in an effort to justify a lifestyle that is clearly not supported anywhere in scriptures, look at this and make it sound like it's something it wasn't. This friendship was simply a deep, 
strong bond between Jonathan and David. They were more than brothers. They were like blood brothers, and nothing would come between them. And I'm wondering, do you have a friend like that? I mean, do you have a friend, when we're talking about this friendship, does somebody pop into your mind going, man, that person is that to me? That person that I can be absolutely real around. I can be raw. I can be authentic. I can be just me. I can be unfiltered. Do you have a friend like that? Where you can mess up and they're not going anywhere. They're going to forgive you. You're going to move on. That kind of friend, super tight. I would pray we all would have at least one of those. I've, I've been blessed. I've got a couple of those. And I'm telling you, if those guys were removed from my life, it would be such a huge, significant loss to me. But this is the kind of friendship that Jonathan has with David. So in, in an effort to express this friendship, it, the Bible says that Jonathan gives David his robe, his tunic, his sword, his bow, and his belt. And these are objects that symbolize the deep friendship. If you're giving somebody those things, you're talking about trust. You're talking about all kinds of things. So it kind of sets up for why they even entered into this this covenant together. And when he does these things, it's like Jonathan announcing to the whole nation that David is like a brother to me. Now this is Jonathan, the oldest son of King Saul, and as far as anybody knows, the next in line to follow his father as the king. And he's saying, I got another brother. That's a big deal when you're supposed to take possession of leadership of the country to say, I got somebody who's my equal. And so Saul sees this. Saul is uncomfortable with all of this. Jump down to verse 12. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but he had departed from Saul. I think Saul knew things were shifting. Times were changing. That uh, He already knew that God removed his blessing from Samuel already told him, God's blessing's off you. So he sees loyalties changing. He's uncomfortable with Jonathan's tight friendship with David. And in the middle of all this, not only that, but David falls in love with one of Saul's daughters. Her name is Michael. And they get married. So not only is David like a son, he is actually now part of the family. He is a son-in-law. So David's getting very close. Now jump down to verse 28. When Saul realized that the Lord is with David and that his daughter Michael loved David, Saul became still more afraid of him and he remained his enemy the rest of his days. I mean, this is still early in the, in the relationship. And Saul, his father-in-law, remained his enemy. And we read that Saul tried to kill David many times. And you think you have in-law problems. <laughs> is your father-in-law trying to kill you? Don't answer that. But this is, the, this is David's problem. I mean, I mean, his father-in-law hates him so much that he wants to kill him. He becomes crazy jealous of David. And uh, it gets so bad. And you're going to have to go read this on your own, but it gets so bad that David runs away. So can you flip your Bible over one page? Let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 20. David fears for his life. Saul is going to kill him, and he runs away. I mean, he's got to get out of there. It says in, in verse 2, excuse me, back up to verse 1, David fled to Naoth at Ramah and went to Jonathan and asked, what have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he's trying to kill me? It's hard to read emotion into written word, but I can hear some emotion here. I think David's like, hey, I mean, what did I ever do to your dad, John? I mean, what did I ever do to him? He wants to kill me like this. 
And, and Jonathan, his response is, never. No, that's not going to kill you. Look at verse 2. Never, Jonathan replied. You're not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything great or small without letting me know. Why would he hide this from me? It isn't so. I mean, this is Jonathan saying, David, you're out to lunch on this thing. My father saw. He tells me everything. I'm the oldest son. I, I'm his inner circle. He, if he was trying to kill you, I would know it. And then David said in verse 3, David took an oath and said, Your father knows very well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he has said to himself, Jonathan must not know this or he will be grieved. Yet as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, there is only one step between me and death. David's like, Jonathan, you don't know everything. And your dad knows how close we are. And he knows that if you ever found out that he wanted me dead, it would break your heart. Jonathan, you're in the dark on this one. You don't know the truth. That's what David's saying. And then we see a transition. This is a really, really powerful transition when you understand the context. Jonathan is going to show his loyalty to David over his father, the king. Look at the very next verse. So Jonathan says to David, whatever you want me to do, I'll do for you. That's powerful because Jonathan chooses David over his father. And if anything, you would think that, that David should be submissive to, to Jonathan. I mean, Jonathan is next in line for the throne in the people's eyes. And, and Jonathan should have authority. It's like, hey, you know what? My father's not going to touch you. I'm his son. You can trust me. But there is a role reversal that's happening in this friendship. You have Jonathan submitting to David. And this is huge because in this moment, I think Jonathan is starting to connect the dots that God's blessing is lifted off his family and it is now squarely on David's bloodline. I'm wondering if Jonathan, in that moment, he's coming to a sense of saying, I'm on the losing team. David's the future, and God's going to cut off my family. Whatever was going through his mind exactly, we're not sure, but we do know that he chooses David over his father, and the two of them work out this really ingenious plan of how David is going to escape. Now look at verse 14. So they work out this plan, and then they have this final conversation. Jonathan says to David, "'Show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness as long as I live.'" So that I may not be killed. And do not ever cut off your kindness, David, from my family. Not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan and David reaffirmed his oath out of love for him because he loved him as he loved himself. I think Jonathan knows that his family is going to get cut off. God's blessing was off his family. They were eventually going to lose. I think Jonathan realizes this. And Jonathan knew, as well as anybody, that the smart thing for David to do would be to eliminate anybody that has a connection to Saul. Oftentimes, when there's a massive transition of power, there's often an effort to eliminate the previous leader and anybody that would threaten the new king. And so Jonathan is essentially saying to David, before they part ways, like, listen, I want you to promise me. I want you to remember my family. When all this goes down and, and our family's out of the way, I want you to remember me and my family no matter what. He makes a covenant with David, 
And not just with David, but did you hear the language? With the house of David. It's with the house of David. In other words, David and Jonathan's bond, this friendship, is going to transcend generations. It's like saying, as long as, David, your family is on the throne, would you show kindness to my descendants? That's what Jonathan is asking. Now, that's incredible friendship. No matter what it costs, be kind to my kin. That's what Jonathan is saying. Well, to make a long story short, Jonathan, he helps David escape from King Saul, and King Saul finds out about what Jonathan did. Jump down to verse 30. Here's what happens next. Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan, and he said to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. That's strong language, friends. Almost sounded like something else. Don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send someone to bring him to me, for he must die. Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Jonathan asked his father. Saul hurled his spear at him to kill him. Now that's a lot of anger management issues. I'm just going to say it right there. To throw your spear at your own son for questioning why you hate David so much. Then Jonathan, Jonathan knew that his father intended to kill David. Can I encourage you on your own time, maybe even today right after church, to sit down with your Bible and read 1 Samuel 18 all the way to the end of the book and then start 2 Samuel starting in chapter 1 and read to chapter 9. There are so many incredible details of how David runs and he flees and Saul pursues and all the things that God does in this story, but uh, leading up to Mephibosheth's story. But for now, we're going to have to leave the backstory right here. By the time you get to the end of the book of 1 Samuel, we learn that both King Saul and his son Jonathan are killed in battle. That's the last thing we learn in the book of 1 Samuel. And then when you jump to the beginning of 2 Samuel, um, we learn that David finds out that his best friend is dead. And he mourns for him. I mean, it is a powerful beginning to the book. I mean, I mean he talks about his... I mean, it's just... Powerful. You need to, to read it. It's, it's emotional as he wrestles with this brother. This, this blood brother is dead. And then as you keep reading, we learn that David becomes king, but it's not an, er, e, uh, an easy journey. David is going to have to fight off all of Saul's family because there's people in, in Saul's family that assume kingship as well. And uh, it's the very thing that Jonathan knew. He's like, hey, this is not going to be an easy transition, so please remember my family. Well, that's exactly what's happening. So for the first five chapters of the book of 2 Samuel, David is fighting to establish his throne, and he's fighting against Saul and his descendants, and it is bloody, and it is gory, and, and it is a long struggle that takes five chapters to unfold. And if you love that kind of stuff, then the first five chapters of Second Samuel is for you. It is a lot of violence. And then, as you get into the next couple chapters, chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, we see that David establishes his kingdom. He takes over the city of Jerusalem. He drives out all of his enemies. And by the time you get to chapter 9, you kind of get the sense that things are starting to go really well for David. 
I mean, it's kind of like this moment where he can kick his feet up, look out the bedroom window, and see the beautiful view, and say, you know what, things are going good. I think we have arrived. And it's in this moment, something comes flooding back into David's memory. This is years later, but he remembers his friend Jonathan. And he remembers this oath, this covenant that they made together that David would take care of Jonathan's family. And so we come to 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1, and we read this. David asked, is there anyone left of the house of Saul? Now that's not an odd question if you know the environment. Why? Because David had just spent eight chapters of 2 Samuel getting rid of Saul's people. And so he asked the question, is there anybody left? But they don't understand what he's intending. He says, is there anyone left from the house of Saul whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Can you imagine the people in the room, his advisors, when he asked this question? And they're like, can you imagine maybe some of David's champion fighters are there with him and the captains in his army? And they're like, what did you just ask? We've just spent years getting rid of these people, and now you're asking us, is there anybody left, not so we can finish them off, but so that we can show kindness to them? And David's like, yeah, that's what I'm asking. And then if you look at verse 2, we learn it's because David wants to honor his commitment to Jonathan. It says, now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, are you Ziba? At your service. He, I kind of envisioned like, yes, sir, at your service. What can I do for you? I mean, Ziba doesn't want to die. He's connected to Saul, but he's summoned by the king. And the king asked, is there no one still alive from the house of Hall, Saul to whom I can show God's kindness to? And Ziba answered the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. I've got to believe that there's a little bit of relief in Ziba's voice. I mean, he didn't know if he was coming there to die or what, but he goes, is there anybody left? I want to show kindness, God's kindness to them. And Ziba's like, whew. He says, there is one. Jonathan still has a son. Did you know that? You know, it's the son. He's lame in both feet. He doesn't walk. He's got issues, but Jonathan still has got a son. And David's like, where is he? And Ziba answered, he is at the house of Makur, son of Emil, in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Makur, son of Emil. Um, and when Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay honor. And David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. He didn't know what David wanted. I would imagine that maybe Mephibosheth was trying to lay low, fly under the radar. I don't think he wanted anybody to know that Jonathan was his dad and King Saul was his grandfather. But David found him. And David must have sensed that there was fear because the next thing David said was, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul. Whoa. That's no little thing. And you will always eat at my table. And Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead underdog like me? It doesn't say underdog. It just makes more sense with our series. Why are you paying attention to me? 
Mephibosheth said. And then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and he said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord the king commanded his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. I just, it's, it's a powerful blessing that is going to somebody who completely doesn't deserve it at all. And I can imagine this in the, in the private conversations between David and Mephibosheth. It went down like this. He said, Mephibosheth... Listen, long time ago, once upon a time, you probably don't even know this, but your daddy and me, we were like best friends. We were closer than ever. Your dad, he stuck his neck out for me and he made promises for me and he saved my life. And we made these promises and I intend to keep them. And Mephibosheth is like, what do you want with a dead dog like me? It's a sad, it's a sad caricature of how he saw himself. He saw himself as worthless. He saw himself as undeserving. He saw himself as like, I'm bottom of the totem pole here. Why is the king paying attention to me? I don't understand this. And David gave everything that belonged to his grandfather to him, which is a huge gift, provided for him the rest of his life and said, it's gonna be like you're a son. So how like I was like a brother to your dad, you are gonna be like a son to me and you have a right to sit at my table anytime you want with the rest of my family. Why on earth would David do such a thing for Mephibosheth? The answer is simple. Because once upon a time, he and his daddy were really close, and they had a bond that transcended earthly logic and wisdom. And you look at this guy, Mephibosheth, it's not like he went out and did something spectacular. He was this massive underdog who went to eating with the king. Do you understand? It doesn't get much lower than Mephibosheth, and it doesn't get much higher than eating with the king. In one blessing, he went from here to here. And let me just tell you something. In Mephibosheth's story, I see our story. In his story, I see our story. And just like David made Mephibosheth a part of his family forever, we serve a God who has made us a part of his family forever too. God has invited each and every one of us to his table forever, even though we did nothing to deserve it. You know what we deserve? Because of our sinful ways, we deserve to be eradicated, just like Saul's family deserved to be eradicated. But once upon a time, someone from David's family, David's family offered friendship to us. It was David's grandson, 42 generations later, named Jesus. And it's Jesus who decided to be friends with us in a whole world full of lame, 
underdogs. Jesus came to this earth so that you and I, these underdog sinners, could be brought into the king's presence and be given a place at the king's table. Jesus came so you and I could be treated as sons and daughters of the king of kings for all eternity. And the king came to earth to show that we could be redeemed and connected to him forever. I think about Mephibosheth's story, and it's just this unimaginable underdog, but he experienced one of the greatest acts of kindness you're going to read about in all the Bible. But the greatest act of love and kindness is when Jesus did for us underdogs what David did for Mephibosheth. We didn't deserve it. But the Lord said, you come to my table anyway. And I wonder, are you seated around the Lord's table? Is your name tag in front of your seat and your place setting? Is it reserved? Have you reserved your place around the king's table? You have a spot if you want it. How do you claim that spot? Through faith in Jesus Christ. Because the Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Have you reserved your spot at the table? 